Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball, and my guest today is Justin Lowe, author of The Great Big Show. Hello, Justin. Welcome. Hello, Maggie. Thank you. Can you tell us just briefly, for the audience's sake, uh, about your book, The Great Big Show? What's it all about? Well, it's, it's as the name implies, it's, it's about one of the biggest shows uh, around. It's the First World War, especially for poets, for some reason. We've always had a uh, maybe an unhealthy preoccupation with that war. Um, so it's, it's based, it starts off in Sydney with an um, English officer who's uh, here on secondment training the Australian Army. And he's got to clean up his father's uh, mess. His father's been put into a home, and he gets involved with a nurse at the at the hospital. And then it moves on from there. He's uh, assigned to sort of a sort of a, a real travels across to South Africa, then up into the northern hemisphere, into the whole sort of mess up there in Europe, and rescues a battalion of Indian uh, soldiers from the Western Front who have been completely shattered by the the fighting there, and takes them to the the uh, theatre in East Africa, which was assumed to be a soft option for them um, because the fighting wasn't quite as intense. But they uh, end up getting completely swallowed up in the war in East Africa, and it's it's a, it's a story. It's as much an internal story as the external story of the crew that swing up these people. And there's other uh, characters like Cyril Oxley, his companion on this great journey, and and there's the people back in Sydney, like Anna the artist and the nurse Cathy that he leaves behind. They're all facing the big events in their own way. And um, the story's as much, as I say, an internal story with their uh, adjustment to what becomes almost a new of humanity, this enormous event that just swallows up the world. And how do you, um, from day to day, adjust to that and start to um, alter your perceptions of the world and the people around you? Mm. And I felt in many ways it was a, a character study too about the, um, I guess, you know, the, the macro perspective of the war itself but also the micro perspective of these people who are changed by it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a, you know, it, it's a very challenging thing to do to get back in time into their heads because we are very much to our, our world now and our product of that time um, and what came after and um, to get back to that, what, begins as an Edwardian sensibility and you can, well, I'm, I hope in the, in the story you can see people's, that, that Edwardian sensibility being challenged every day in, in, in tiny little sort of details of their lives and their observations of what's going on around them. It was quite a fair, I, I've thought my era, the war, so I find that era quite uh, vibrant and quite an incredible time. And it was just a tragedy that got swallowed up the way it did and, and, and basically spat up, uh, chewed up and spat out and what came out the other end was just um, a bare husk of, of what could have been but uh, I'm not the first person to say that obviously. Now just, just to get the listeners into the mood of your book, can you read us a bit from it? I certainly can. Um, <clears throat> I've got a few poems here marked. Obviously there's a choice of the best three or four hundred years so I suppose I'll start off with the first poem in the book. Um, it's in the voice of Freddie Manstein, who's, the, the, I suppose, the pivotal character of the whole story. And this is when he's uh, in his father's house cleaning up, uh, looking around and, and uh, deciding what's to stay and what's to go and you know, exactly where he sits with his father, etc. 
many of us have been in this situation. I've been in this situation to ring. In my father's house, the bear and was like a spider in the throat. There is a door to which I cannot find a key, iron shadows on which my mother's memory hangs. The great clock, the one that used to wake me every hour, stands with its face to the wall, such as Angus would turn against anything that persisted in its nature. There are stains that will not lift, and the acrid air of one forgotten. In his ward the nurses have their measure of him. They do not reason or cajole. There is neither menace or lies. They simply state what will and what will not be done. However, Angus cannot find his place. He is a man who will argue incessantly with time, with the justice of wind, every heartbeat the echo of some battle. There is a stiffness in his movements now as he shows me around the grounds, naming this and that thing. The matron advises me not to dwell so much on this. Just a little, that photo mirror. The friend whose name is always just there, slippery as glass. There you go. So tell me why you chose that piece. Well, I just thought it was, uh, you know, it's the first poem in the, in the, in the novel and uh, it sets a, a scene for some of the, um, the uh, dynamics of Freddie Manstein's character and the idea, I suppose, that there is a life being left behind and... Uh, and a very uncertain. His relationship with his father is, to say the least, ambiguous. And uh, there's even a, a certain um, question uh, hanging over Freddie's actual pedigree because the two brothers, Freddie, uh, Angus and his brother, uh, were at loggerheads for years. And there's a suggestion later in the novel that perhaps Freddie's mother um, had with the uncle, that he was the product of this. So he has a very muddy history, family-wise. His mother ended up in an insane asylum, and um, I just thought that was a good way to set the tone for the, for the novel. Uh, it's, it's also, when I started to write this, originally it was a prose novel, and um, then I just tore it up because it became a boy's own adventure. And then one day I was sitting in my father's house. He's just been, or about a year ago, put into a, into a dementia clinic, and um, I was doing the very thing that Freddie was doing, cleaning up and this brothers came to me and I thought, hang on, I've got this idea of maybe I should try a verse novel with this, this idea. So yeah, that's how that started. And it, it, the poem itself, I suppose, has a certain sort of, um, I, I'm, I'm attached to that poem, um, just simply for that very reason, I suppose. Mm. Now Freddie, Freddie is, is a pretty complex character. Um, yes. there, there are quite a few um, over him, not just the, the um, you know, uh, paternal issues, but uh, also perhaps the murder there as well. Tell me a bit more about Freddie. Where did he come from? Well, Freddie actually does come from a real character, um, and I had um, uh, all sorts of ideas, all sorts of plans for Freddie to be even more strange and, and perverse and psychotic than he already is. I mean, the, the character he's based on, I hope I don't get into a lawsuit about this, because I know Emily is around, based on a character, Richard Minus Harden, who was, believe it or not, a British officer and very, very British. He was a major, I think, major general perhaps. He was quite high up. And he was very uh, into the pre-war. There was a lot of, before the First World War, a lot of 
um, intelligence work and secret spy. Well, they were called the gentleman spies. It was the year of the gentleman spy, and he was one of those. And, and they would, you know, he was fluent in German, and he lived in Germany for years and was spying on all the, the preparations of the Kaiser for the war and all that. Um, and when the war started, he was in East Africa at some stage. He was at the Battle of Tanga, which was an early battle in East Africa, where a whole bunch of Indian uh, brigades landed on behind the German lines on the beach at Tanga, which is one of the big ports in northern Tanzania. Um, and they had they were they were cut down. It was like an early version of Gallipoli. They were cut to pieces and they were stuck on a beach. And when Richard Minot's hard in landed ashore on, I think, the second day, and he saw some Indians running away because they were scared, as he would be, he decided to run a sword through them, about three or four of them, and killed them on the spot, and just thought that was... He didn't even bat an eyelid. And then he went off, in the midst of the battle, he went off uh, bird-watching. Um, and there's about Richard Martin later. He only read... Really in um, What's the guy's name? Bill... I can't remember the guy that wrote The Secret Life of Everything. Or the, the, Bill Bryson. Yes, Bill Bryson. There's a story in that Richard Minishagen being this crazy bird watcher. Uh, between the wars, I think, he started to go to the Natural History Museum in England, in London, and, uh, you know, do a lot of research, and he penned a few, research, uh, a few um, pieces for the Science Journal or whatever. Um, and over those years, it was about 40 years, he, he pocketed, very rarely, he just would walk out of the museum with him in his pocket to the extent that when he died, he left in his will four or five tea chests full of these priceless artifacts that he'd just stolen. That he'd stolen, and he re- and they were returned to the, to the Natural History Museum uh, almost, and there was this no apologies, but it was like he was a gift. He was a very, very strange man, very, very odd man. Um, so when I started to work on Freddie Manstein and I came across this guy, this Richard Minitzhag, and I thought, this is the guy, this is the one I've got to base it on. But I feel I failed at it because Freddie's not quite uh, as insane as I was trying to make him. He's, he's complex and he's riddled with all sorts of, you know, the, the, the baggage of his past and stuff. He's well. He's likable compared to Richard Minotaur, and he's likable. So um. he's also probably, you know, I guess to a certain extent, and what makes him a good character is that he is indicative to a certain extent. I guess of a type. I mean, you know, he was a good soldier. He fit in his role. Yes, he was a good soldier, but a terrible uh, politician. And and when you get to that sort that that rank, he was a major. And he what he'd done before the war, you know, he'd been a very very. uh, an officer, and he had the year of Whitehall and all that. He was a terrible politician, and all the bureaucracy that goes with an enormous effort like the First World War, you have to have that political mouth if you're up at that level. He didn't have that, and that's why he and Cyril were uh, pretty much shipped off to East Africa, and they're almost like dinosaurs. That the the, um, the new regime, the, the, the sort of the new world, just had to sort of get rid of because they were too too problematic and um, you know they're both bristling with all these little um, complexities um, and, and this new uniform sort of khaki grey world just didn't want to know about it there was too much going on to, to bother with these sort of people like you know the, the mad cousin you just have to sort of see now and then you, and you just want to ship him off somewhere you know 
So yeah, I, I'm quite fond of those two characters, but I don't think I'd like to be locked up in a room with them. Them. No, or, or perhaps uh, have them ruling you or leading you in a <laughs> war, right. I guess. Uh, now, you told me about the, the first poem and uh, I guess the relationship to your initial prose manuscript and, and this one. Um, tell me a little bit about why verse worked and prose didn't work for you in this. Well, I don't think I was ready to write the book when I wrote the prose book. I just It was an idea that I had for a long time um, to write about this, the East African part of the First World War because it's so exotic because that's the other queen, all that stuff, and it's a very under um, uh, chronicles uh, element to you know recent sort of history, um, and it was a, it was a big it was a titanic struggle that no one really knows about, you know, ranging over thousands and thousands of miles through what in those days was largely uncharted territory, um, and dreadful casualties mainly from disease and, and wild animals and terrible battles and, and just a monumental effort, you know, uh, traipsing around the jungle and the deserts for four years. And I thought, okay, I'll write a story about it. But when I started to write the prose story, the characters didn't gel. It started to get really boy's own and there wasn't that sharpness. That, and because I'm primarily a poet anyway, not to say that I can't write prose, but I'm just, there's a certain strength to my poetry that was lacking in this and it needed it. And so when I started with this poem, Room 16, that I just read, and then the idea occurred to me, oh, hang on, here's where I can go with this. It just flowed from there. And uh, I, I really didn't look back. I worked solidly for a year on it. And um, from go to way, yeah, probably about 10 months, 11 months, I was finished. That was it. Mm, that is fast. <laughs> just rolled out, yeah. And, and did you, you know, begin with, I, I guess, uh, you know, the sorts of things that one would, um, in a prose novel, did you have your outline, sort of your, your plot? Oh, your yeah, I had, a, I had sketches and I had an idea of the characters. Things cropped up. I mean, like Corporal Pradhan, there was, a, there was a, a certain dynamic missing and Corporal Pradhan filled that uh, perfectly because these two characters, Cyril Oxley and Freddie Manstein, as good as they are as soldiers, as I said, they lack, or especially Freddie Manstein, lack that politic instinct and... Uh, and Pradhan was just a workaday corporal, you know, a bit of a stereotype, but um, he knew his men, he'd held with them, um, and he uh, he just kept everything together quietly, you know, in the unassuming workaday way that those sort of corporals do this stuff. He uh, he just uh, filled that, that gap. And uh, Anna, the, the artist, she just sort of happened on me. She's loosely based on my mother, actually, Anna. Um, I was very fond of her character, Zoom. Cat was there in the head, and, um, and Cyril Oxley and, and Freddie Manstein were always there. But it was mainly, I think, um, as you pointed out in that review, I don't know if I should be mentioning that. You can mention but, it. Yeah. Um, the, uh, it was so much, when I was writing it, there was so much that got swallowed up by the, the events themselves, that even as I was writing, you know, 90 years after the event. It's such a huge thing to take on um, that so much of the uh, the characters their their attitudes uh, did seem to um, get swallowed up in the, the events around them, and that troubled me for quite a while. And then I thought, no, this is perhaps the way it should be. Um, it's it, it's called the Great Big Show. That the title was always there, uh, and as I went on with it. 
I let that just roll, uh, and the the, uh, the characters that being small, they came quite mind against the backdrop of what's going on. So um, the narrative does it can be. I was thinking at one stage maybe I should have color coded the pages for each different character's voice, but uh, that uh, that does. Perhaps if you are looking to have a clear narrative line, it's going to bug a certain type of reader. But I hope people will simply uh, accept it for the poetic vignettes that it is, that like a jigsaw puzzle together, and find there is a sense of what you know the story. Um, finally, making some sort of sense or leaving some sort of impression on the reader. Now, one of the things I did note in the review, and um, that struck me, was it, it almost felt like there were there were two types of character. You have lot, you have a number of different characters, but you know there was the, the, the whole male female thing going on. I felt like they were very different on the same war. Was that intentional? Sorry. I felt like they were they were almost different perspectives. The, the, yeah. the, the, the females grouping together to prevent to present almost a kind of anti-war. Um, perspective where, where the males tended more to be, you know, of action. Yes. Um, in those early days, because this is, by the way, I should point out to the, to the readers and listeners that this is based in the very early months of the war. Um, I think probably the latest it goes to is about sort of mid-1915, maybe June or something. And in that era, that early age, there was that uh, very gung-ho, uh, as we all know, the very enthusiastic rally around a flag thing but uh, there had been uh, in a lot of countries but especially in Australia post-Federation and the 1890s here there was a suspicion an innate suspicion of the Northern Hemisphere and uh, a certain elements especially what especially there was a strong female um, presence in the uh, in the not isolationism but a sense of Australian Australia going its own way, and um, that's what I tried to portray with, especially with Anna, and and to a lesser extent, I think Catherine. Catherine was really just there, you know, uh, as a, an agent who was being acted upon more than she was acting, uh, until she sort of took the hook with the the ball or the horns later in the book. But um, uh, when the war started, there was a real disappointment for a lot of people that we simply fell into line with the rest of the world. And I was trying to portray that, and it does seem to have come down as a gender-specific uh, dynamic there, and I think you're right. And I didn't intend that, but it just seemed to come that way because of the, that uh, street uh, where Anna and Catherine went through with her, uh, and all the, all the men in that area, and this is a historical fact, simply joined up almost from day one because, you know, they they're all shipwrights and stuff. They didn't have much sort of real reasons to hang around. I feel it was the, the, the big adventure. So it was a, a very much a woman's um, domain there. There was hardly any men. There was a, you know young kids, young boys, and and the older men. Um, and so the, yes, their take on the war was very different, I suppose, to the ones who who went off. Uh, I try. I do um, give a sense of the 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 female participation in the war as far as when Catherine finally did sail off and, as a nurse, obviously, and she sailed off and, and um, faced the same 
demons and the same problems as the men had, you know, not long before. But it was a different era. I mean, there's no... You just... It's far more um, delineated in that way. Mm. Now, in your postscript, um, you refer to the horrific war in the African Congo. Um, do you feel that there are some parallels? Uh, mm, that's a hard one. I, I, obviously, the colonial uh, shadow has never left. I mean, it's just more insidious in a way. What happened in 1914 was... Um, I mean, because they had not intended to fight, the uh, European powers in Africa said, whatever happens in Europe, the it was going to boil over in Europe. They signed a, a treaty, I think, in... 1885 in Berlin, it was called the Treaty of Berlin or the Treaty of London, one or the other, and they said, okay, this is what, if they go to war over in Europe, we don't. You know, we're too busy trying to, you know, develop infrastructure, blah, blah, blah. That's their problem. We're, we're here. But the minute war broke out once again, all that went and they all started. But the, uh, the, the reasons for fighting then were simply following, you know, the mother country, whichever one it was, whereas these days there's such ugly little tentacles coming out of all sorts of places, uh, and so shadowy and insidious, and um, I can't see really, and, and they play on the tribes, I mean they did that in the First World War too, they did play on tribes against against tribes, and, but now it seems so much more um, just established, and can't see a happy time for Africa for a long time to come. Mm. And I guess there are parallels with the numbers of people who are dying. Sorry? Oh, the numbers who are dying, yes, yes definitely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the uh, at least in the uh, First World War, I don't know if it, it's, you know, small mercies, but the, the Europeans themselves put their lives on the line, whereas now it's done all from a distance. And, yeah, yeah. Tragic um, circumstance that's been going on for way too long. Mm. Now tell me, tell me about um, the publication of the book. You self-published it. Um, yeah. I know you use Lulu in the US, and um, you, did you publish it, self-publish it separately in Australia? No, no, no. It's, it's just through Lulu, um, which I can't recommend highly enough. I must say. I mean, I know there's a lot of people that disparage it, but I, I find it the easiest way, and I have to say the most profitable way, to put books like this out. I mean, I would have published. Or if I had, it'd be a lot of trouble um, for very little return to me. And you know, the um, distribution process for poetry, especially in Australia, is uh, is really it's it's almost non-existent now. So the best way I find is to do it like this through Lulu, who are a fantastic outfit and very professional. Produce book. Uh, sell it through my website and buy up some copies and put them around bookstores because there are some great booksellers in Australia that are very, very supportive. Um, and I just found that the best way to go. And did you do the same with Glasshouse Palms, your poetry book? Uh, Glass Palms, yes, that. That went through Lulu as well and I, I just logged that you know, through my, my, um, my tiny reputation. <laughs> And that sold pretty well, and this one's going really well. So it's just the way I want to go. I mean, if I will, if I had written this as a prose book, as a, you know, a novel, um, 
things may have been different. But as a poet, as a poet with, as a person, a writer with my reputation established in poetry, I find it very. I go to books and I say, yeah, yeah, I will stop. Whereas if I find them with a, a, a novel, a fiction, prose novel, there may have been a different sort of um, agenda for them. So you just do all the distributing yourself? Well, yeah. I just and through the website, people can buy it through Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all that. But uh, yeah, I do all the distribution self from this end, and I've got complete control, and it's, you know, it, it, it suits me really well. So, so you do it again? Will I do it again? Yes. I'm halfway through the sequel to this book. Book, yes, yeah, definitely in the same way. Um, I have my resident uh, artist who does all my covers for me. She's sitting downstairs, and she, you know, so there's no problems there either. So all the all the designs and stuff um, I've got uh, worked out here. That's it was a great cover too. Oh well, Sue, you'd be glad to hear that. Yeah, no, she does a good cover. So were there big lessons that you had to learn self-publishing? The lessons of self-publishing. Mm. Were there any real, you know, big learning curves that you had to to go on? No, I no, I I have been sort of at this game in one form or another because I was a magazine editor and I've been at this game for long enough to know that there are certain people to avoid. Uh, I can't mention any names, certain book chains in this country that uh, are pretty venal. I think, I think they're fairly well known at this stage. Yeah, yeah. They, they haven't done themselves any good service in, in recent times. The people outside Australia want to get on the net and maybe look up recent... Uh, uh, corporate history in this country republishing, they, they'll probably find out a few yucky stories. But you avoid those sort of people. And, and I must say, a, a couple of the other big booksellers in Melbourne, Sydney, Hobart, Adelaide, they are so approachable and, and really, really just enthusiastic about books and what you know, regarding. Uh, they really have no problems. And not only do they take my books on consignment, they pay up front. So they're, they're really putting their money where their mouth is and and um, you know the, I, I find that so heartening um, how they do window displays on their own volition and yeah it's it's just great I find it really encouraging so all this terrible talk we've had recently about the a certain chain and, and, and the corporatization of the book industry I think it is a big threat and I think there's a lot of booksellers who are finding it hard but if people can you know get off their backsides and support their local booksellers, the world will be a richer place. Sure. And I think, you know, the uh, real readers do want to have bookshops that provide books that are worth reading. They want that full service. They want somebody to say, oh, look, there's a book you love. You know, you'll love. I, I've read it myself, and, you know, I'll tell you about it. And, you know, that, that kind of just can't get in the big chains. Exactly. And, I mean, I'm, I've got to say, you know, and there's another thing that bugs me recently about the uh, debate about the Internet as well. Uh, another certain author from England. Um, sure, there's a lot of absolutely awful stuff that's on the net. I mean, really crazy stuff. You, you just don't read it. You just go somewhere else. There's the, the, the machinery of the net, the infrastructure of it, makes people like me, and, and I'm sure yourself as well, you find it so, you know, with your compulsive reader site, it is such a great domain. Uh, um, for writers to um, exchange ideas and, and their books. And if a big chain, if someone walks into a big chain and says, blah, 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 where is Justin Lowe's The Great Big Show? 
Um, they go, we don't have it in stock, uh, but we can look it up on the net, you know, Google Book Search or whatever, and we can order it in. It's it's that easy. It's 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 not a problem. It's 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 an amazing uh, tool for civilization. And all this talk about how the internet eroding divide mining civilization such a narrow, shallow view. Um, it re- it really bugs me. Sure. I know what you're saying. So look, we don't have a lot of time left and um, I think in the future I might have to consider an hour because I'm always running out of time and uh, I'd love to keep talking. But just briefly, um, can you tell me a little bit about um, why you think the verse novel seems to be gaining in popularity? Maybe I've just been coming across them lately, but uh, Dora yeah. mentioned to me that you know she thinks it's just the fact that the word novel seems to draw readers that might have avoided poetry books. Yes, that's a good point. That's a typical Dorothy too. It's right, right on the nail. Um, well, I was inspired by her. I mean, she she wrote uh, what? How many Akhenaten, the monkeys? Was it the monkeys' mask? I can't remember now. But she's written three verse novels, and they're all great. Um, um, just, I just reviewed El Dorado. So. Oh right. Okay. Yeah, I haven't seen that yet. But uh, she's a great poet. Um, and I, when I started to think about writing a verse novel, obviously she was the first person I uh, started to consult. I just flipped through, back through her, her work that I've got on the shelves here. Um, but I, she's right, it is. It's because people who... Are, I mean, there is an aversion for... I remember being in a, in a bookshop about uh, five years ago up in Newtown in, in Sydney. And uh, I was just sort of browsing around the poetry section and these two sort of middle-aged women came in and they were they went to pick up a book in the poetry section and this woman opened it and saw it was poetry and she went, ooh, and it was almost like she'd picked up a spider. It was a bizarre reaction. So perhaps, yes, uh, that the idea of a, a narrative line in verse, back to poetry, there is the other side that people are starting to see in poetry a particular, I mean, this is as old as, this has been, uh, you know, narrative, Poems has been written since Homer. I mean, we all know that. I mean, that's another thing referred to in the review. But um, there is a certain succinctness uh, and clarity in, you know, as long as the poet knows what they're doing, um, that can sometimes be lacking in some of the more funky prose out there. Um, and people, perhaps, who don't do actually look for that. They are searching for that clarity and succinctness that poetry can offer, um, and the emotive um, charge that you can only really get from a great poem. And uh, maybe in, in the novel form, it's combining the best of both worlds. I don't know. I mean, it does seem to have taken off, though. Yep, that's terrific. Right, um, we're almost out of time. We've got one minute left. In that minute, can you t- tell me what you're working on now, what we can look for in the future from you? Well, I'm working on the sequel. It's a sort of a sequel to The Great Book Show. It's set in the 20s in Sydney. Um, it's based on a, a cricketer, Archie Jackson, who lived and died very... He, he was an international cricketer for a very short time. He died of tuberculosis. Um, and so he grew up in Balmain and played at the Birch Grove Oval where rugby league was invented. And uh, it's, it's a story loosely based around him. It's basically set around that community. Uh, and the it's a single voice this time. You'll be, you'll be happy to know, maybe. Uh, 
a, a war veteran uh, who, who's gone back home after the war and is living in his parents' house. They're both dead, and he's basically just uh, just sweating around Balmain and as Pat, he's the uh, guy that operates the scoreboard at first level. Um, I'm about 80 pages in, but his life keeps catching up with him and, you know, always goes from his past. And uh, it, it's proving quite a... It's a different book, a very different book to The Great Big Show, and it's proving quite uh, enjoyable to write. And yeah, there's, a, there's a cast of very colourful characters as there used to be around Balmain mm-hmm. between the wars. So that's that's going to be maybe maybe be cool. I don't know another nine months. Eight, so I might have to uh, send off to the publishers. Wonderful. Well, we'll look forward to seeing that. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for your time, Justin. We're I think we're out. It was a um, joy. Next month, uh, the Compulsive Reader Talks has guest Graham Kinross-Smith, who will talk to us about his novel, Long Afternoon of the World, a Christian story which Frank Morehouse calls delicious. That's on the 21st of November at 10 a.m. Sydney time. So then, And if you miss catching us live, you can hear all of our shows in podcast at any time, available directly from this site. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dustin. Cheers, Maggie. Cheers. See you soon.